all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, where we discuss issues involving your children as they are growing up. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC and Program Director of the MedPeds Residency Program. We all want the best health care for our children and family, but what if you don't have the resources to get that care? What are some of the ways poverty affects you and your family? And some, what are some of the ways we can recognize the problem of poverty and do something about it? Today we'll be discussing how poverty impacts the health of our children and families with our special guest, the president of the American Academy of Pediatrics, Dr. Bernard Dreyer. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens from MPB Think Radio. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. The campaign of Republican presidential hopeful Donald Trump says that the candidate is considering a defamation suit against the New York Times in response to the paper's report about women who say that years ago Trump kissed or groped them. NPR's Sarah McCammon has the latest. Trump is denying allegations of inappropriate touching that have come from several women in recent days, in addition to demanding that the New York Times retract a news story in which two women accused Trump of unwanted sexual contact in the past. A former writer for People magazine says Trump pushed her against a wall and forcibly kissed her more than a decade ago when she was interviewing him for an article at his Mar-a-Lago club in Florida. Trump asked on Twitter why the writer didn't mention the incident in her story at the time. NPR Sarah McCammon. The Pentagon says it destroyed three radar sites in Yemen as retaliation for attacks launched on Navy warships at sea. NPR's Philip Ewing has more. American warships in the Red Sea fired on the radar stations after a series of missile attacks from shore. First, a ship operated by the United Arab Emirates was destroyed by cruise missiles. Then two later launches targeted but did not hit the Navy destroyer USS Mason. That's why the U.S. says it was acting in self-defense when another ship, the USS Nitsa, destroyed the sites in Yemen that were targeting ships for attack. It isn't clear exactly who launched those attacks or who might have been killed in the American strikes, but the Pentagon said it focused on areas controlled by anti-government Houthi rebels. The U.S. has been supporting Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states, and Yemen's government in the ongoing civil war, but had kept out of the conflict itself until now. Philip Ewing, NPR News, Washington. The Nobel Prize in Literature this year did not go to a novelist, playwright, or even journalist. This year's winner is singer-songwriter Bob Dylan, as NPR's Lynn Neary reports. The Swedish Academy cited Bob Dylan for having created new poetic expressions within the great American song tradition. Permanent Secretary of the Academy, Sara Donius, said he was part of a great tradition of poetry that's meant to be listened to but can also be read. Bob Dylan has long been known for his complex and often politically charged lyrics. Here comes the story of They 
This is not the first time Bob Dylan has been honored for his body of work. He received a special Pulitzer in 2008 and was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2012. Lynn Neary, NPR News, Washington. A 10% September drop in China's exports have led international markets south. With the exception of a minimal gain on the Shanghai Composite Index, Asian markets lost ground, as did European shares. On Wall Street at this hour, the Dow Jones Industrial Average down 129 points. This is NPR. Britain's High Court is considering a suit designed to force Parliament to hold a vote before the U.K. can trigger Brexit. As NPR's Frank Langfitt reports from London, Brexiteers see the suit as a backdoor attempt to defy the will of the voters. Gina Miller, a London investment manager and social activist, is lead claimant in the case. Speaking to NPR, she said such a momentous step should require parliamentary approval. Because I don't feel that we've had a rational, grown-up, sensible debate about all the factors that would impact on us leaving the EU. It was very much um, overshadowed by people who were basically power-hungry politicians who were um, fooling the public, in my view. Miller's legal argument? Only legislators can repeal the legislation that eventually took the UK into the EU. Under political pressure, UK Prime Minister Theresa May agreed earlier this week to a public debate, but says she won't allow Parliament to stop Brexit. Frank Langford, NPR News, London. In flood-ravaged North Carolina, more than 50,000 homes and businesses are still without power, down from the nearly 900,000 at the height of Hurricane Matthew. Twenty people have died in the state as a result of the storm, mostly vehicle-related. Several counties have been approved for federal assistance. Florida Power and Light says it has restored power to more than 1.2 million customers hit by Hurricane Matthew last week. Meanwhile, Hurricane Nicole has made landfall in Bermuda with top winds of 120 miles an hour, expected to move on heading northeast by the afternoon. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Embry Family Foundation, working to expand awareness, explore possibilities, and elevate consciousness through philanthropy and community building. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. Catch up on past episodes and hear any of the MPB programs you've missed on the MPB Public Radio app. Available on iTunes and Google Play. Listen live to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. Search MPB Public Radio. This is Mississippi Public Broadcasting. I'm Terry Gross. Listen to Fresh Air weekdays at 3 on MPB Think Radio. You're listening to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Good morning and welcome to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy and I have a special guest with me this morning, Dr. Bernard Dreyer, who's the current president of the American Academy of Pediatrics. And we're going to have a special discussion about something that affects uh, the lives of, of pretty much all Mississippians, but particularly the lives of our children of our state. And that's poverty and how it impacts health this morning. This is an area of interest that Dr. Dreyer has had for a long time. It's an area of interest and a priority of the American Academy of Pediatrics. And 
I don't know about you, but I, I can't think of any other state in the nation that could benefit from anything that we could do to uh, both raise awareness, to increase advocacy on uh, on poverty and its effects uh, on our children than the state of Mississippi. And I know we have some listeners in Louisiana and uh, in Alabama and Tennessee, and certainly there's areas in those states as well. It's not a common that uh, a problem that's particular to Mississippi, but it's common to a lot of southern states. So unfortunately, we do have a lot of those issues in Mississippi that uh, we're going to talk about some of those this morning. So, Dr. Dreyer, thank you for, for agreeing to come on the program with us this morning. Oh, my pleasure to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from originally, and sort of your practice and your story of uh, what led you to become the uh, president of the AAP. So I'm uh, in New York City. I'm uh, the director of pediatrics at a big city hospital, Bellevue Hospital Center, which only serves poor kids, mm-hmm. poor families. So uh, my entire career has been taking care of poor families, uh, and therefore I've become very aware of the uh, problems that poverty uh, does uh, impact these families with, and, and especially the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have, uh, my career is therefore focused on developing interventions in pediatrics, especially pediatrics primary care, to improve um, children's outcomes, especially early brain and child development, um, uh, because pretty much all kids come in for their well-child visits in the first three to five years of life, get their immunizations. And so it's an opportunity that we have as pediatricians to help families uh, get the resources that they need uh, to not only bring their families out of poverty, but uh, ameliorate the impact of poverty on their children. Yeah, I, I know. Uh, you know those those when you talk about those first couple of visits uh, to the physician, it's really critical in in forming those relationships with families, with caregivers that are bringing those kids in, with the children themselves. And you're right; it is a great opportunity to start talking about some issues that uh, may not be something you would think about about going to the physician. Most people, when they bring their kids in, think about the immunizations. They think about making sure that they don't have any. Uh, you know, special health care problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, you know, those the things that we ask, those questions about, okay, do you have food security? Do you have access to the things that are going to be important down the road and not just right now? Um, and it, unfortunately, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, challenges in a lot of pediatricians' uh, offices these days with volume, with what we actually have time doing, with you know, how do we interact with an electronic health record in doing that? I think everybody's sort of struggling with that right now. Yeah. So uh, nothing is – change is never easy sure. in any practice. Uh, what, what the American Academy of Pediatrics is recommending is that pediatricians routinely ask these questions about the, quote, so-called uh, social determinants of disease, but really about basic needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but we have provided a lot of resources with for pediatricians to do this, uh, screening tools, um, ways of helping them develop the resources, and we don't necessarily expect the pediatrician to do this. This mm-hmm. is most people in their office. It's really a team of people right. that are, are taking care of families. So it could be the nurse. It could be the. Uh, you know, the medical assistant. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really have to be just the pediatrician doing it. And uh, I think the key is to connect families mm-hmm. to whatever com- resources are in your community. Sure. Which means 
we do expect, and actually, I can just say that most pediatricians are doing a lot of this already. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do expect that you have to learn where those resources are, how to refer families to those resources, and how to follow up with them to make sure that they got what they needed. So when we talk about poverty and its effects with children, so how big is that problem? I don't think people, we think in the United States, uh, you know, it's it, we're not a thor- third world country. We're not an emerging world uh, country. Mm-hmm. So how, how, how big is the problem of poverty and how does it affect our children? So the, the problem of poverty is big for children in this country. Children are the poorest group in our society. So about 20% of children... Uh, are below are living below the federal poverty level, which actually doesn't adequately measure poverty. Probably about 200% of the federal poverty level is where mm. families actually have enough funds to meet those basic needs. Mm. Uh, that would be almost one in two children. So uh, now why are children um, the poorest group in our society? One reason is we've solved poverty for some of the other groups. So, in fact, years ago, seniors were the poorest group. But between Medicare, increased Social Security, and other programs, we protected seniors. So this year, only 9% of seniors are living below the federal poverty level, whereas there's 20% of kids. Mm -hmm. Now, that's good. I'm not against seniors getting care. We're Mm -hmm. all for that. But the question is, why don't we do the same for kids? And we are an outlier uh, among developed countries. Uh, in most of the European, in all of the European countries and Canada, child poverty is much, much lower than it is in the United States. So that's really one of the reasons, or the reason, why the AAP has made this a strategic priority. Yes, and also because, uh, getting to your second question, poverty affects child health mm-hmm. and long in a long-term way. So we know there's increased infant mortality, increased uh, prematurity and long-term problems in development and health from that, Uh, increased accidents leading to many more dead children from accidents, Uh, increased severity of chronic diseases such as asthma, Uh, and then perhaps even more importantly, uh, poor uh, long-term outcomes in education Mm -hmm. Uh, because uh, of the importance of early brain development and and the double jeopardy we put kids in in early childhood when they're poor and they may have some other problems. Yeah, just so, compounding those yeah. issues. So we know by the time poor kids get to school, they are, they're not really re- many of them, not all of them, but many of them are not ready to begin to learn. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so one of, our f- uh, one of our areas of focus is to improve services in early childhood to poor families because we think we can really make a difference there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when, when you talk about childhood poverty, it's really we're talking about family poverty. Correct. And, um, you know, it's, it's even, even I think if you, if you wait until that child is born, you're really, you're really behind already if you hadn't adequately done that. And we've had some problems that did address that, WIC programs, particularly from a right. nutrition standpoint. But there's a lot of areas there that really were not supporting families before they actually have that. Baby. Absolutely. Uh, we, we talk about uh, crossing the birth line mm-hmm. and being on both sides of that. So that absolutely, the, the, the really, this, this starts prenatally. Of course, after all, that baby is growing, you know, and their brains are growing there. And so 
absolutely. Uh, the ideal programs start as soon as the, you know the mother is pregnant. Mm-hmm. In fact, or even before, before you know yeah. she's pregnant. Uh, and there are programs nationally that do that, such as some of the home visiting programs that start visiting mothers prenatally uh, and then continue visiting once the baby is born and have been shown to really make a difference. The, the problem is that they're not funded at a level where they reach even a, a, even 10% of the population mm-hmm. that really needs them. Sure. And do you think that that, because of the way family dynamics have changed over the years and the last probably two or three decades with having extended family members as sort of resources within that family um, where families maybe not don't have that for whatever reason, if there's stressors that allow them uh, to be separated from that? I mean, is that an issue with, with a lot of that? Yeah, well, we know that uh, there's been a general increase in single parenthood. Uh, that certainly... One parent, is, especially if they're poor, is just going to be much more stressed out. I mean, I, I, I speak to mothers who are single parents who are really doing their best, but, you know, they're working two jobs sure. just, to, just, sure. to not, just to keep in poverty, not to get out of poverty. And so, you know, think about working two jobs, having a child, and then coming home, figuring out what to do about child care, where to leave your child when you're working, worrying about that child all the time. And then uh, realize how stressed out that fa- that sure. mother is or father, and uh, and you know how much bandwidth do they have left to really kind of do the stimulation and reading and yeah. talking that kids need. I've had uh, some mothers that were in that same situation, and then you start to talk to them about the importance of reading to their children. I remember one mother in particular that said. When am I supposed to have time to read to my child? Okay. Which is an illegitimate question. I mean, right. it was it was a legitimate question that you just don't have that time. And even if you do, uh, they're exhausted uh, because they don't have the resources uh, that they need to really take care of their child and themselves, so that they can take care of them their child. Right. So one of the things, one of our areas of advocacy is also to try to improve the economic status of poor families. Uh, and a couple of things we are advocating for is an increase in the minimum wage, which is especially important since most poor families, if they're working, they're working either at minimum wage or perhaps even below minimum wage. Uh, so uh, increasing minimum wage will really help those families and give them s- some increases, increased resources and maybe not have to work two jobs or, or one and a half jobs mm-hmm. so that they have some more time for their kids. Uh, in our intervention programs with poor families, uh, I, I do want to say that when you model things that they can do with their kids, they're avid to pick those kids up and do that for their kids. So, so what do you think is the is the role of the pediatrician? Or you know, we certainly you represent pediatricians in the nation. We know that 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 is the largest group taking care of kids, right. uh, but also family physicians are yes, doing that too. Absolutely. So, what is the role of physicians uh, or providers in really raising aware awareness in their communities? What can they do to to do that? Yes. So. Uh, First of all, I find in most communities, pediatricians, probably family practitioners as well, are sort of trusted voices. Uh, You know, when pediatricians talk in unison about a problem, people sort of sit up and listen. And one of the reasons the AAP has made this a priority is to harness the power of the voice of pediatricians, both nationally and locally. Uh, I'll tell you an interesting story uh, 
in New York State, we've been trying to get uh, paid family leave for a long time. Uh, the AAP chapter that I used to be president of, but now I'm not, uh, uh, has been working for the last 10 years mm-hmm. with a whole bunch of other uh, organizations in the chapter, in the, in the state. And this year, it seemed like, well, maybe it was going to happen. So we, we all met with uh, this, the legislators uh, that were making these decisions. And it was the voice of the pediatrician, happened to be me, but it really could have been any pediatrician, the voice of the obstetrician who could talk about that prenatal period, and the voice of the parent who had lived through this. That's what finally convinced them to say, okay, this is the year we're going to move this needle and fund it. And now New York State has the best uh, family, uh, family paid leave program in the country, which is, as far as I'm concerned, not adequate because it's only 12 weeks. But it's 12 weeks of protected paid leave, which is, you know, infinitely more than sure. uh, exists in most places. Sure. And you can you can make a difference. I think a lot of people think they can't, but you're right. I mean, there's that trust with legislators, with uh, you know, the policymakers is is really the thing that you can have those relationships with them. Take time to do that and and get the word out there about the importance yeah. of it. Well, especially pediatricians. Everybody who has a kid has a, sure. knows their pediatrician. Sure, mostly loves their pediatrician. Yeah, and trusts them. So you come with that. In addition. The American Academy of Pediatrics as an organization is somewhat unique as a medical professional organization because although it does want to uh, protect pediatricians, its major agenda is children. Sure. And, and, so, and so we're kind of the good guys, or yeah. the good gals. Try to be. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, when, when we come in, they actually know we're there honestly trying to do good. We're talking with Dr. Bernard Dreyer, who's the president of the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics, about childhood poverty and how that impacts the health of our children. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the issues that are direct in direct relationship to poverty and how it affects our children. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Chamber Music Guild, presenting All Things French, an evening of music and culture featuring James Martin, baritone, Marta Sloboska, and others, on October 15th at Millsap's Academic Complex. Tickets and information at mscmg.net. Maybe you start your day with the news on Morning Edition and catch up later with All Things Considered, but the news doesn't wait. Stories evolve during the day in courtrooms, financial markets, on the streets, and at kitchen tables locally, nationally, and all around the world. I'm Jeremy Hobson. Each weekday, check in with Here and Now for the news as it is happening. That's Here and Now from WBUR and NPR News. Weekdays at noon on MPB Think Radio. 
Facebook called him a lowly spammer. They never thought he'd become a champion for user rights. Nobody up until that point had ever had the courage to publicly say to users that they don't control their data. I'm Audie Cornish, Stephen Vachani, and the lawsuit that may force Facebook to relinquish control over your profile. Next time on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on NPB Think Radio. On Mississippi Edition, you'll hear in-depth discussions on the issues that matter to you. We'll bring you important news about the state's always changing political climate. You'll hear from community leaders and others working to make a difference. And of course, there'll be stories from the real lives of real Mississippians. So check us out. We're online at mpbonline.org or on the air every weekday morning at 830 right here on MPB Think Radio. Boo! <laughs> You're listening to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Welcome back to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy with Dr. Bernard Dreyer, the president of the American Academy of Pediatrics, and we're talking about the impact of poverty on our families, on our children, and just has some great discussion about just the, the scope of that with 20, you know, 20%, one in five uh, that are technically in the, in the poverty level, uh, but maybe even more than that, maybe up to 50% if you look at 200% above the poverty level. Certainly Mississippi has... Uh, a ton of people that are in that category if in and you know proportionally a lot more we've talked a little bit about the effects of um poverty and on health care on individual health care things but what is the link uh, both in the, what you see in early childhood but also in chronic problems later on that you may not they may not know are affected by poverty yeah, well, one one thing that uh, is we know is significantly increased in poverty uh, is obesity, and uh, certainly that's true in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, there's uh, rural areas in general have more obesity, uh, but uh, so this is a big problem because obese children become obese adults, uh, and that means lifelong health problems uh, of of diabetes. Uh, of heart disease, um, et cetera. So, I mean, it, it actually will cost our country a lot of money in the long run. Sure. In addition to producing uh, unhealthy adults that will be suffering with those problems all their lives. And it, that's one a, of the, and that's, that's a misconception with a lot of people. I think there's a sort of a throwback to, well, if you're poor and that you don't have obesity as a problem. Uh, and, right. and traditionally in societies up until the last century, that was the case, Yeah, that poor societies did not have obesity issues. And uh, But that's true because of the dynamics of how we get our food and access to food and what you can actually, you know, nutrient-rich versus nutrient-poor foods and calorie-rich versus calorie-poor foods. Yeah, yeah. so... Uh, Poor, poor kids uh, 
are actually uh, at very increased risk to be hungry. Mm -hmm. Uh, Food insecurity is the official term for that. Uh, We know that almost half of poor kids every year are food insecure. So, uh, and the rest are probably teetering on the edge. Uh, The amount of nutritional support that they get from programs like food stamps, which is officially SNAP, uh, really doesn't cover the entire month. So sometime in the month, the food runs out. Uh, so therefore, those families, really, they're trying to give a meal on a dollar a day or a dollar fifty a day to their kids, which means that the kind of food they can buy when mm-hmm. they can buy food is going to be very calorie-dense, nutrient-light foods that, uh, that are cheap, we can go into the reasons that they're so cheap, as, as, but, but vegetables, fruits and vegetables are not cheap. And so they, they literally cannot afford to give their children healthy foods. So what that means is when the kid is hungry, they're going to be eating a lot of high calories, leading to obesity, but then there are going to be times when they're you know, not eating at all. But overall, the total number of calories they're getting is inappropriate for uh, for the amount of nutrition that they need, and plus they're losing out on good nutrition, fiber, uh, you know, vitamins, etc., that they really need for healthy growth. Yeah, and it's you know we we talk a lot about obesity in families, and it, it you can look around at other family members in the room and say, okay, well, this is a family problem. This is a multi generational problem. I think a lot of people, though, when they talk about it from the standpoint of genetics, that, well, mom was was overweight or obese, my grandmother was, my grandfather was, I guess there's no hope for me. Um, you know, you don't think about that modulation of what you do early on with your children um, with those kinds of things. And it doesn't take much, you know, the, the, you're exactly right. The, the types of foods that you have access to in poor areas uh, we call them food deserts. So they're uh, areas where you really, the only uh, food sources, you don't have those more nutritious food sources that are very important for normal growth and development for staving off some of those effects of obesity, like cardiovascular disease later on. Um, there's just They're just not there. And if you do need something to eat, uh, you're right. You're going to buy something that's cheaper, and it's probably going to be have a lot more calories and, unfortunately, a lot more fat and carbohydrate. Exactly. And, you know, the interesting thing about obesity and poverty uh, is that even in the developing world, in Africa, in Asia, in poor countries, in low-resource countries, where we think of kids starving, uh, and there are kids starving there, but they're also seeing in their poor populations a dramatic increase in obesity. I've, I've been just... Uh, this year, I've been traveling somewhat internationally, and, and that's become now a, a big yeah. problem, not only in the United States, but in poor, low-resource countries yeah. for the same reasons. Yeah, exactly. For the same reasons. I, I first noticed it, so I've been uh, going to Honduras for about uh, 20 years now, off and on, about on average once a year. And uh, you see the same things there in poorer right. communities. We're working with a people group called the Chorti uh, who is sort of in a marginalized group. But you do see the same thing. So we're starting to see been working really hard on food security for their families with what they grow. They're an agrarian uh, people group. Uh, but uh, it's it's incredibly difficult now to start to see some of the same issues among them with obese kids that are nutritionally, if you pay attention and really look, you're going to find those nutritional de- uh, you know deficiencies. So obesity, fat, does not necessarily mean that they're healthy. 
And that's that's a hard thing to, uh, I think, yeah. socially and culturally for us to understand that that's a big issue in poorer communities. It's also, a, I wouldn't say a political issue, but a, an attitudinal issue because people sort of feel, well, if they really are so food insecure, why are they obese? Right. And I think the, the, the way we've explained it this morning is a way of thinking about the connection between food insecurity and obesity. The, the good news in this country, at least, there is good news, that we do have programs that protect uh, children. So, for example, uh, the WIC program is uh, critical uh, to prevent not only for nutrition for infants and pregnant women, but to prevent iron deficiency. Mm-hmm. So when I started practicing medicine, you know, I would say 20% of the kids I saw were iron deficient. Mm-hmm. Now that's a rare child sure. in this country. Yeah. And that's, that just shows the importance of government programs to protect children who are poor. So what about some of those, those long-term effects? So if you grow up with poverty uh, as a child, when you get to be an adolescent or even a young adult, so we've talked about obesity and its right. issues, but what about some of those other sort of uh, peripheral issues that you may not think about that might be impacted by that? Well, one of the big areas is social-emotional development. Uh, I mean, of course, it's language development, cognitive development, intelligence, but it's social-emotional development turns out to be a critical factor in both uh, performing well in school because if you, if you don't have any self-regulation, you can't sit still in class. You don't have the ability to pay attention. You start to act out, and then you become viewed as a problem. And it starts a vicious cycle for many poor children. In fact, one of the things we're focusing on now is the high rate of preschool suspension. Uh, An amazing number of kids in preschool are being suspended and kicked out of school. Uh, And, uh, you know, we used to talk about the school-to-prison pipeline, and we now talk about the preschool-to-prison <laughs> pipeline. Yeah. So, uh, That's, uh, yeah. That is, I mean, it just, I, I've dealt with this with a patient of mine recently and uh, has been suspended several times in preschool, and it just boggles my mind about, right. you know, the, the ways that behavior is managed uh, is, in a lot of ways, just to not deal with it at all. And, yeah. there, and there are problems there. There are yeah. problems. But but those problem behaviors are signals that that child needs services. Right. Not right. that he needs to be kicked out of school. Right. So, I mean, yeah. that that's the, the problem with the, the... The problem is there, but the solution is not kicking them out of school. I, on the contrary, it's keeping them in school and giving them the services that they need. Sure. Uh, so long-term, uh, you know, you start out school two or three grades behind kids who are uh, have more income, and uh, you never catch up. Yeah. Now, we're talking on the average. Of course there are kids who are resilient and catch up, but on the average, by the time you get to the... Th- by the time you enter school, pretty much, you know, it, your, your fate is sealed from the point of view if, you, if you're really not being able to sit still, if you can't read, if you're behind in reading... If you're behind in math, it's really hard for schools to catch you up, uh, you know, compounded often by poor kids being in schools which are all, also under-resourced. But even if they're well-resourced, it's still hard to catch, sure. catch those kids up. So that leads a cascade of uh, problems as teenagers with, uh, you know, using drugs, early pregnancy, 
getting involved in crime, uh, not graduating from high school, and, you know... Which is a, that's a setup to become poor or stay in that poverty right. state. It leads to a cycle of intergenerational yeah. poverty. And again, you know, the economists get this as a problem. Uh, uh, economists estimate that child poverty costs this country $500 billion a year, mm-hmm. mainly in three pots. Extra money for health care for those adults that grew up as poor kids. We talked about diabetes, et cetera, before. Uh, extra money in the criminal justice system um, uh, because of the preschool-to-prison pipeline and, um, and lack of um, economic productivity. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're poorly educated, you can't get a job, or you get a low-paying job. You're not adding to the richness of this country. So what you mentioned, you know, you do see those kids, that you hear the stories that they grew up in poverty. Um, they um, they may even, I heard this as a testimony with an adult the other day that told me, well, I was very, we were we were in poverty, but we weren't poor. Yeah. And, you know, there are some con- context about that. But, how, you know, those, the, the thing that really strikes me is that some kids, some families, uh, the minority probably, they have hope, and uh, hope sort of transforms them going forward, moving forward out of that. But for the vast majority of families that are really struggling day to day, and they may have done that for two generations, three generations now, there's no hope. There's no hope of ever breaking out of that, and that's a very hard thing to to partner with families to say there is hope beyond your situation that you're in. So there are some innovative programs that do make a difference. I mean, your comments are exactly on target, uh, but uh, there are innovative programs both in pediatrics itself and also out in the community that help families. And we know that home visiting programs make a real difference for those families who seem that they don't have any hope. They 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 work with the families to, by the way, give them some more resources. Mm-hmm solve some of their problems, but also help them become better parents and, you know, deal with the maternal depression if it sure. exists. A lot of maternal depression among poor mothers, as you could ima- as you might imagine would be the case. Uh, so we know home visiting makes a difference. We know um, high-quality child care makes a difference for that child's brain. We know uh, yeah, uh, pre- pre-kindergarten programs that are functional – Make a child make a real difference for both both generations because they often focus on both and Head Start makes a difference mm-hmm. for both generations. And, you, and you're not just talking about academic substance because I think a lot of people hear that and they say, okay, Head Start. They're talking about really good pre-K uh, programs, but it's not just about the academic side of it. It's more of it, it's the social, the emotional needs of that child, and those are incredibly important for development. Yes, absolutely. I think I think if we if we had to choose, we'd focus first on the social emotional needs. Mm-hmm. But the important thing to recognize about child development is you can't separate those things. Right. In other words, I can't get a child to learn more language if I'm not socially connected with that child. Mm-hmm. Language is part of social emotional communication. And so parents who scream at the kid and talk to talk at the kid and give them orders are t- are using words with that kid, but that's not helping social emotional right. development. And then and therefore that doesn't help language development. So it's a combination of social emotional 
and language and nurturing and safety and nutrition and 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 taking care of the parent as well. Yeah. Very complex process that you can't tease out one thing and and you have to think about that with interventions that uh really a comprehensive program is what you need. Uh, unfortunately, that's not always accessible in every area or with funding sources. So we're going to take a short break. We're talking with Dr. Bernard Dreyer, the president of the American Academy of Pediatrics, about poverty and its effects on our children and the health care of our families. We'll be right back after this break on Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. election year has been unpredictable, and it can be hard to keep track of what's true or not. But NPR's election team wades through it all, so you don't have to. Be informed. Listen to this station every day. Hey, y'all. It's Felder Rushing. I'm the Gestalt Gardener, and I am so pleased to join y'all every week talking about gardening. You know, you don't have to be anybody or join anything to be part of this party. All we're going to do is talk about gardening and garden-related stuff and maybe a little psychology working in at the same time. Let's have a lot of fun on the Gestalt Gardener. Fridays at 9 and Saturdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Catch up on past episodes and hear any of the MPB programs you've missed on the MPB Public Radio app. Available on iTunes and Google Play. Listen live to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. Search MPB Public Radio. This is Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Coming up this week on MPB's At Issue, charter schools. The charter schools give you more freedom to design their program in exchange for more accountability. They're funded by state tax dollars that public school districts receive each year. They're, they're in it for the right reasons. But some believe giving public money to charter schools is unconstitutional. We need to think about how to become partners rather than trying to fight one another. We'll take a closer look at charter schools on At Issue this Friday at 7.30 p.m. on MPB TV. News you can trust in radio built around you. Mississippi Public Broadcasting. You're listening to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Welcome back to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics at UMC. Uh, and I'm here with my special guest, Dr. Bernard 
Dreyer, who is the current president of the American Academy of Pediatrics. And we're talking about poverty and how it affects the lives of our kids and also our families. And uh, certainly a big problem, a problem that maybe somebody uh, in, you know, just walking down the street doesn't realize that we uh, are facing in America. But it certainly uh, it has lots of impacts, as we've been discussing uh, so you mentioned, Dr. Dreyer, about some some specific programs, particularly the home visits. Um, and tell us a little bit more about some of those programs that have been successful. How are they funded? Um, who is going out? And what are some of the, the issues that they're dealing with with the families and helping them? So home visiting, uh, uh, the federal government funds uh, some of the home visiting programs, a significant portion uh, through the uh, uh, the uh, maternal child health bureau, and uh, and sort of reviews the research as to which of these programs actually make a difference. Uh, the most uh, well known home visiting program is the Nurse Family Partnership. It has lots of different brand names, but it's basically uh, a nurse goes out starting prenatally. Mm-hmm makes visits to the home, and focuses prenatally not only on the mother's nutrition, making sure that her prenatal care is up to date or helping with the prenatal care on that visit, uh, but also looks at the home, makes sure they have the resources in the home for the new baby. Uh, You know, you may find that there's no heating in the home. There's no refrigerator that's working. So it tries to solve some of the problems that you may, you can't, necessarily know unless you're in the home. So that's the, that's one of the beauties of the program is that you're there where the action is. You know, that's where most of the kid's life is being spent. Um, in addition, um, the parent in rural areas in Mississippi often can't get in to access care. So this actually solves that, that problem as well. And then after birth, the nurse continues uh, monitors the mother for the development of maternal depression. A very significant number of mothers develop postpartum depression in the first year of life, especially poor mothers. But then there are new, there's make sure she's bonding with the child, helps her with initiating breastfeeding, um, uh, solves financial problems, gets resources, connects her with resources if she doesn't have enough money for food. Mm-hmm. So really is kind of wrapping around that family, uh, helps the father too, by the way, if there's a father there, wraps around a family, all the, uh, as many resources as exist to help lift them out of poverty, but also, you know, blunt the effects of poverty on the, on the family and, of course, on the child. And then also can pick up problems if the child is not developing well, if the mother seems to be having problems with the child, they can get, you know, they can step up the intervention and try to do something about it. Uh, The the problem with the program, and it's not the problem with the program, it's the problem with the funding of the program, is that um, although the federal government is putting a lot of funding into the program, it's reaching only about 2 to 3% of the families who need it. So uh, we we have to ratchet up that, that support for what is a, a, a well-known home visiting program. There, there are other models that also are effective that don't use nurses, mm-hmm. that may use uh, uh, college students or uh, uh, you know other somewhat less well-paid interventionists. Uh, 
uh, but uh, and may focus only after birth. Uh, but uh, any all of these programs are really going to be helping the family and then uh, monitoring what's going on between the mother and child, and then just supporting her in learning the skills that she needs. Yeah, it really is one thing when you talk about the families that are in communities where they're they're not able for transportation reason. Even if they have transportation, uh, I have a lot of patients that have you know have uh, public transportation that they take in, or they have to arrange it with family members with friends. That's difficult. It requires a lot of scheduling. It takes them away from work. Um, even if they have a work excuse, it's not necessarily something that's looked upon favorably to to take off. Uh, it, but you can get so much more information if you have somebody who's trained uh, in the home uh, the, to look around and really see the the living environment that may not come out on a visit um, uh, unless you actually see how it's doing in, in real time. Exactly. And it's also relationship-based. So just like we talked about helping children develop their brains, it's all about relationships. Sure. It's all about how you're relating to the child and nurturing the child. You can't do it without that. You can't talk to a child without loving that child Mm -hmm. if you're going to make a difference. The same is true for interventions to help families. The same nurse or interventionist comes there periodically. The mother learns to trust that person. Very often, problems that they don't confide in initially come out later once they learn to trust the person. Sure. Uh, and then they, they, they use them as a resource when, when, pro, when problems come up. The problem is, as I said, we, we need to fund more of these programs. And, uh, and that's a, a point of advocacy for the American Academy of Pediatrics, but it should be a point of advocacy for all of us. You know, I, I was thinking about what you just said about those relationships. So in Mississippi... Uh, we pride ourselves on our relationships with people. We're known for our relationships. It's uh, true, actually. We're often, uh, when we go elsewhere, we try to make connections, uh, particularly with, with families. I think my mom knew your mom, uh, and that's important to us. That connects us as Mississippians and, and as Southerners, too. But we're also, you know, we're the state of Faulkner and Eudora Welty yeah. and Grisham. Uh, so we love stories. And we love to tell our stories, and our stories and those relationships oftentimes connect us. And I think as a, as a physician, as a pediatrician, those are the things that really I thought were much more powerful uh, probably overall than any medication that I've ever given. Um, and those are the things that I think are the most powerful to try to, to develop these relationships with people that don't solve all the problems, but they do lay the foundation so that you can get families the right resources that they need. And I'm intrigued by that, by that method. I mean, that's really, it's, it connects with who we are as, as a people, yeah. uh, no matter what your background is or the situations that you're in. We, we actually have a couple of calls. I want to go to these right quick. This is uh Patty in Jackson. Good morning, Patty. Yes. Um, how are you? Good. I'm Thank you. I run outside. I got a horn here that's going off. I oh, don't know sure. Who has it. But I apologize for that. I'll go outside. Yes. Um, to address the conversation at hand um, in reference to poverty and, and, and children, in Mississippi, we've been given a pass all over the country with the government help. But the government has to rethink the way uh, they're just rationing out resources and money. With all the nonprofits that are across the nation, 
it, it's not. It's just building more nonprofit for reasons because people think they can help poverty. And if it doesn't, if it's not grassroots resources where jobs are put back into the communities, people now are just, women are just having babies. Their babies having babies. Teenage pregnancy is just gone rampant. And, and speaking of rural Mississippi, education, we think we got problems in Jackson. Those people up there don't have the proper educational system that keeps them out of poverty. And if it's a generational curse, then we have to go back to figure out what really happened. Because we were healthy just 20 years ago. I, I grew up in Detroit, and I'm not going to be much longer. My mother, we grew up in the projects in Detroit in the 60s. My mother always says, not where you live, how you live. She went to school at night and worked by day. And she taught us that. We just don't have that anymore. we got to quit rationing out handouts. That's not helping us. You just said we're spending billions on the lack of um, care that we already care that we're giving. So when do we, when do we find out the real solutions? We, we have so many studies. And I appreciate all the pediatricians, especially throughout Mississippi, because we are getting better with figuring out why our children are not being, uh, um, they're, why they're malnourished. But we have it. They have food stamps. We got those programs. And it seems to be we have food deserts all over the state. Yeah, I think, Patty, you've hit on the issues. Uh, and, and, you know, you, I think you're an example of one of those people that uh, whose family had that resiliency. Uh, but those are the the issues that are out there. Um, and certainly a lot of the programs, um, we have to look at, at what works and what doesn't. Yeah, so this is Dr. Dreyer. Uh, uh, completely agree with many of the things you said, Patty, uh, especially about education, um, uh, you know, education is a key factor in, in total life success. And we have to figure out how to make that better and do it all over the place, not just in certain places. Uh, but, but I would say that we do know some of the things that work that are solutions to these problems. And we do do some of those things. And the people who get those services, we were just talking about home visiting benefit from them. You know, there's uh there's uh, good evidence, for example, that kids who get home visiting read better in the fourth grade, graduate high school, more, more likely to graduate high school, et cetera. So we know that those programs work. We just uh, need to have the, the state level, the local level, and the national level will to make sure that all the people who need them get those programs. And, and those are not handouts. Those are support so families can actually do the kind of things that they want. They really want to do. We appreciate your call, Patty. And uh, let's go to Bill in Meridian. Good morning, Bill. Yeah, uh, this is Bill Shopping. Uh, Dr. Dreyer, man, I appreciate you uh, for having the courage to come on the radio as a doctor, uh, 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 especially pe- pediatrics, and saying that uh, that uh, raising the minimum wage would help poor children. I think that's wonderful. I'm a, I'm a great fan of uh, uh, Mississippi Public uh, Radio, but uh, like like I've list, I listen uh, constantly since I've been disabled. But uh, like uh, rarely will any doctor take any kind of political stance, and this problem is half political. 
it, it's not just if we teach people to stop eating potato chips, they'll they'll turn into uh, uh, Einstein's. You know, it, it, it's like if if you can't get to a store where there's vegetables because you have to walk to the store, you're not gonna you're gonna have to buy potato chips. Man, I've driven all over the South, and you see these families, families walking across a, 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 a four-lane interstate with a divide in the middle with little bitty children to go to a, a Walmart yeah. so yeah. they can get cheaper groceries. Okay, thank yeah. you so much. No, thank you, Thank Bill. you, Bill. Yeah, it's it's certainly a, a big. Uh, you know, you talk about uh, not wanting to get political. Uh, well, can, I, I just met him to make a yeah, comment. Yeah, sure, go ahead. Uh, the AP is uh, is uh, nonpartisan, so I think when we say political, we we often think, oh, well, we're being partisan. We're going to be for Republicans or Democrats. It's not about that at all. It's about we're, the issues, right? It's right. Yeah. And so we said we're we're not for any political party, but we're for kids. And so that's what we ask people to do: to think about what's best for children. And I think a lot of those things can be bipartisan. Uh, and we have to start working that way again. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, I don't view myself as brave uh, for bringing up uh, uh, minimum wage, but actually it's in our policy. Our new policy on child poverty does call out the kind of economic changes we need to make to help families. And, you know, it doesn't take... Uh, any, anybody can stand up uh, for an issue and get the word out. And um, I, I've seen lots of different things that we've done in the state through the AP and, and maybe not through other organizations yeah. that have had big effects uh, because one or two people really said, you know what, this is an issue that I want to take a stand on. They did partner with other people, certainly with pediatricians, with others. Uh, and you can you can make a difference. Uh, we talked about hope earlier on this program for those in poverty. You know, there, there's hope. We may not see it uh, from time to time. We may get discouraged about uh, policy issues or or things that really impact the health of our families, uh, particularly in Mississippi, uh, with all the challenges we have. But there is hope, and there you, you can change that. And I I'm the eternal optimist. So, uh, but I think my optimism uh, is well founded. I do feel that for the first time in, in this past year, people have been talking about the problem of child poverty in our country and sort of feeling we really need to work on this. So uh, I view the future as uh, potentially there to help children. Well, that, unfortunately, that's all the time that we have. You can listen to this podcast if you missed something, you came in late. Uh, you can go to MPB Online and look it up, download the app, and uh, replay it. And uh, certainly talked about a lot of issues. I want to thank our special guest, Dr. Bernard Dreyer, the American Academy of Pediatrics president, for being with us today. It was my pleasure to be here. And you can listen to us on Thursdays at 11, Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. Uh, we always love to hear any questions or comments that you have. So give us an email at kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. This is Dr. Jimmy Stewart on Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. This forecast is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Live healthy. Live blue. It's good to be blue. More at bcbsms.com. Well, we did have a...